Welcome to the Five Phenomenon Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hayes, and coming up on this week's episode, we are going to discuss the most illuminating of topics there are for Christmas time, the Is Die Hard a Christmas Movie debate. Yippee-ki-yay, man. Yeah, with me today is Ted Haycraft. Hey, how's it going, Ted? Uh, I'm here and uh, ready to see what you guys come up with on this discussion. Yes, I um, I mentioned this early on the episode. This is uh, This episode is... For the bots. Uh, <laughs> on today's episode, writer-director Tyler Savage, his most recent movie, Stalker, is currently available on Hulu. Uh, first off, Ted, what did you watch this week? Uh, well, not this, this week, I just, but in the last couple of weeks, I finally got caught up. I, I, was, I felt like I was running behind. Now, I feel like I'm, I'm, well, I had the game at least in Evansville, Indiana, uh, as what's in the theaters. But I saw She Said. You mentioned this on last episode. Did I? T- she Said, Ticket to Heaven, Till. Ticket to I, Paradise, Till. Uh, I don't know uh, if you mentioned Till. And Bones and All. And uh, I just saw Bones and All She this Said. Week. So, yeah, big big string of films. But did you see She Said? Uh, I, I saw, I, I liked it. And it was just a good, solid run of good solid films that uh i i think the up next is i haven't caught up to the menu yet that's the one that's the next i have one. seen the menu yeah but we both saw something last uh we watched avatar the way of the water last night yes uh and i'm still uh thinking about it it's still washing over me is it <laughs> i am not thinking about that avatar oh, really? was amazing i loved oh, it well, oh well okay well that's no you're we, we i hope we are going to do an episode on the first film soon but uh i am not the I I, th- I think the first film is great in IMAX 3D. It is it is just something amazing, and we did see it in IMAX 3D. Yes, I should mention that. And so I'm curious what this how this movie plays. But I am a big James Cameron fan, and one of the reasons I am not as enthusiastic about the first one is there's a lot to love about it, but there are things that are fine as opposed to other Cameron movies where this, each movie feels like one of the greatest film action filmmakers merging good story and. I guess we'll have to see how this plays out at the box office. I feel like there could possibly be a parallel between the two Top Gun films and the two Avalons. That's Avatar. You keep calling it Avalon. Avalon. It's no, Barry Levinson Avatar. had nothing Man, to do with this. I don't this. know why. Yeah, <laughs> it, it doesn't even remember that Barry Levinson movie. Yeah. Uh, but no, uh, Avatar and Top Gun. Because I if uh, just sequels that are significant. Well, I because Cameron's big does- gaps and 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 significantly a huge love for the second one. Uh, I guess I think Cameron's done too many good sequels for this to be an, an anomaly. I mean, he's got, well, I, I've never seen Piranha 2, but, he's a, <laughs> but, okay. he ha, but he has done Aliens and Terminator 2, both of which are great sequels. Yeah. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. And, and I was starting trying to read some reviews and that once I, once I saw it. And of course, I, I'm still thinking there's a lot of, uh, echoes of a lot of other different movies that you love and, and a lot of Dances with well, Wolves again. Yeah, you mentioned Dances with Wolves. Specifically, yeah. One and, scene. Yeah, oh, fair, fair enough. And I think you were talking more about archetypes of um, yeah. uh, uh, story archetypes, right. mainly that is pulled for. One of the things that really hit me, there's an anthropology term called weird, where the basic idea is um, whenever you're studying behavioral sciences, there's a tendency to only fixate on what the type of people called weird people, which is Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. So you can't understand a lot of behavioral things when, say, you go to, uh, say, an Aboriginal uh, society or a society that's completely cut off from the rest of the world. What's the recent? Uh, what's the banshees of Isherin? <laughs> there you go. Yeah. No, 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 I mean like not connected to anything. Okay, like their yeah, own language, still like not connected to the modern right, technology right. or something. In America, we tend to go to American Indian stories for this, but I, I, I just feel like Cameron has a way. I, I think. 
he has a way of talking about certain human behaviors uh, that doesn't in- immediately invoke to, like, him trying to appropriate a culture because he's created something. And the thing is, also, a lot of the critiques you're going to get around this are a lot of cheap people saying, like, eh, it's dumb. And it's, and like, it's, this whole thing's like kind of stony stupid, you know? And like, I, I think that's a hoity toity way of looking at James Cameron stuff. No, I, I, I don't, no, yeah, I, I, I'm not, I, I don't have, the, yeah, I don't have that approach to it, but I do. I've already heard it, is what my point. And, yeah. and I'm not saying in like action movies are inherently dumb type of way of looking at it. I'm saying like people just think James Cameron's sincerity is dumb and it pisses me off. And, you know, we, we are not, we don't necessarily contribute to the box office of movies that we love. Uh, but the movies that do well at the box of are, are ver- a lot of just general inter- people that want to be entertained. And this film is so entertaining. Uh, but if, uh, if you're well-versed in cinema history and seen a lot of films that, and, and you can recall them, you're saying, Oh, this is from this film and this is from this film. And it seems like there's some really, I mean, Cameron doesn't, uh, doesn't have a problem with it, I guess. To me, James Cameron is really good at coming up with crackerjacked uh, con- st- uh, action stories that keep escalating. He's mastered constantly stakes raising and escalation, but he also is, he makes personal films that in his own indirect way. And the thing that I found interesting about this is this guy's like very similar into the Michael Mann method of like he can make action movies that are about a romantic person at the, at the heart of the movie. And like Titanic's a very romantic movie, Terminator's a very romantic movie, The Abyss is a very romantic movie movie about a well, the romance is always very important yes he's switching because he's now a parent mm-hmm. and so he writes the teenage stories there's a little bit of romance in there but most of this is coming from the vantage i've heard him say this in interviews already about this of the asshole dad who has to be in charge of everything right and the family dynamic there i won't i won't deny that i felt like there's some there's some slight missteps here and there but for the most part i was just on the basic level, this movie has such a great third act, and I was like just like a Cameron third act, where it's just master action filmmaker, just like builds and builds and builds. I felt like that was missing from Avatar, the first Avatar. Yeah, and I have to admit that I, there was a couple of scenes that kind of I kind of kind of I kind of jerked at, and kind of like, oh, that's pretty cool. You, you, uh, don't 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 uh, bet against James Cameron is the theme I've also heard. Uh, the other interesting stuff I saw this week, real quickly. Um, uh, if, are you 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 and I are both listening to the Quentin Tarantino Roger Avery Cinema Archives podcast. I finally watched the Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. That was as good as they said on that episode. Oh, it's wonderful. It's just a, yeah. I I could we could do a whole episode. There everyone craps on Wilder and Hitchcock. It seems like I always was under the impression that they both lose their their sway around the same time, and this does not seem to be the same case. Like, I mean, I I saw the Avante too. Uh, the other one, have you seen? It was at um, Sundance this year. Resurrection with Rebecca Hall. No, I mean I remember because because of Rebecca Hall's involvement in the one sheets in the hallway of the theater. I thought I need I, I probably should go see this. I saw, and then I just let it go by. I, I missed it, unfortunately. I saw top a few lists of horror best yeah. movies this year. It's Rebecca Hall really. The thing I can say about her, I I, I mean I mean I've loved the movie. I thought there's there's like a a showstopper monologue in the middle of it, but she's got good taste in her, in her content. Well, exactly. She, I, and I figured that if she chose the script. There yeah. Must be a reason. She picks interesting roles that are about something yeah. too. Like I give her credit for that. It, I hope, I don't know how many more episodes we're going to have for the rest of this month, but lately I've been having this feeling that, uh, end of November, December, 
are the months where I have to like read a bunch of top 10 lists and try to catch up to like make oh, my gosh. own so frustrating top 10 lists. And then I can't watch anything else that's not from this year. And sometimes it does get chore like a little, but yeah, I, yeah, I, I've kind of given up on that. Cause it's just, you're a smarter. Well, because that, you know, I. you gotta have this, you gotta have all the streaming services. You gotta have a certain Blu-rays or, you, uh, yeah, uh, you know what we get here at Evansville is you know can be very slim sometimes. And you do you do have rewards. You do have the ones you miss. You're like, why did I miss that? But they do feel like they're coming further further in between. And before we forget, I I need to do a shout out. I, I uh, this last week we had a little uh, sort of a Comic Con uh, Raptor Con in uh, Evansville. I got to hang out all weekend with Bill Morrison. That was a real treat. Uh, he uh, is the guy in charge of the Simpsons comics, Bungle comics, when they started up. Okay, and I got to pick his brain all weekend. We talked movies, we talked pop culture, and he he did Disney uh, posters uh, for an ad agency before he did Simpsons work. And Matt, that's where he met, and he met Matt Groening early on. So this would have been eighties, uh, yeah, right before the Simpsons started up. And then Matt called him in, but like Little Mermaid, yeah, uh, Little Mermaid, exactly. Yeah, okay. he, he worked on the Little Mermaid. There's a little, there's a hidden Batman. Uh, uh, Nod in the in, in the cape in the fin of the uh, what's her name Ariel. My friend Jim Alexander pointed that actually asked him about that and he pointed it out to us. Yeah, he did the Prince of the Popper Mickey Mouse uh, poster. Yeah, and he's very proud of that one because he to be able to get a chance to do Mickey Mouse, it was just an honor for him to get to do that. Uh, rescuers that, would have been around this time. Too. Yeah, and he did the and before uh, before that for the Disney's he did the house with that hand that this uh, connected hand hitting the doorbell the house. No, yeah, but... that's probably that's quite a while ago and it was just a blast talking to him and that was a real highlight to just uh, to be with someone like that so that was fun well cool and merry christmas to everyone listening uh let's get on to our diehard conversation jingle bells check i got my i got my christmas story uh light lamp <laughs> very very <laughs> apropos what what was your first reaction to uh, me me proposing this topic it's a good topic i mean it's it's like a it's like a classic it's a classic debate and i also remember that bruce willis has an opinion about this yeah which you sent me through uh, uh instagram ted what did you think when i presented this topic uh no reaction at all <laughs> i'm older i'm an old fart i don't this this i'm not really uh uh this, this is not in my playground i guess i should i should do a confessional i think the main reason i wanted to do this topic is because um this is very this is a loaded topic that is also immensely a stupid stupid question that like is it's a very twitter-based question it's a very argument for argument's sake question um I feel like the main proponent of this argument are bots on Twitter arguing with each other. Um, there's a great article from uh, just last year, apparently, is where uh, this uh, debate hit its uh, kind of height, at least according to Google traffic. And there's an Atlantic article called Is Redacted a Christmas Movie by Caitlin Tiffany that goes over kind of the whole history of this debate. and But also the article acknowledges that it's being itself clickbait because the debate is stupid and arbitrary because... It all comes down to what is your definition of a Christmas movie? And Nerdist, you know, and Nerdist did it as well. And it was sort of the same. And it was sort of a similar thing where I feel like it is an argument for argument's sake. So there is almost something cyclical about this where 
it's not like we're going to arrive at some conclusion, but there's different arguments to be made here for sure. Ted? You you still are like looking at me like why are we doing no this? no 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 I'm just you know you guys are you know I I just uh, I'm gonna soak it all in and kind of uh, poke in my head in and out with color commentary I don't the uh, because I just uh, the whole like I said I, when did, I, I'm I'm curious as you found out when how they are the this debate started, started in two thousand according to the the Atlantic article this debate started in two thousand and seven when uh, Michael Agar was writing for the Slade Guy to Overlook Christmas movie and he wrote an entry called Now I Have Mich- a Machine Gun Ho 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 which I have a little problem with that headline because my favorite part of the way that line is delivered is the a the uh is not in there I always had Now I Have Machine Gun Ho Ho Ho. <laughs> That might actually weirdly be the most definitively Christmas moment in the whole thing, because like I rewatched it the other night and uh-huh. it, and, it, and, and it had been it had been a minute and um, I was with someone who I hadn't seen it since she was a kid and really to me the thing that always made it a Christmas movie is like the divorce reconciliation reconciliation exactly. plotline exactly. that's the thing that makes it feel like a Christmas movie but when you watch it it's really just the soundtrack and some ho- and some holiday decorations like other than that the 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 machine gun ho 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 is the only beat that actually has like a christmas costume themed thing in it the and, rest of it's pretty thin and the whole movie taking place on christmas eve but I, I i do go back to my first few viewings of it i do remember the thing i was really into was especially when you get to the end where the kids are on tv and crying for their mom like you want the family to be reunited and the whole thing about this is the divorce and or yes. the, the, the impending divorce and reconciliations in bad marriages come on christmas christmas is a time when they look that's whenever the okay let, let, let's let, let's let's start again either one of you based on when i was looking at this did you guys see a good argument for why it isn't a christmas movie why is it a christmas? it is not it is not, not. a christmas movie because because the arguments tend to be it's an action movie where Christmas is not really essential to the plot. You know, I came and went and just thought it was a nice uh, changing shift action film. I think it changed the, the it was an impactful. We are definitely going to get to that. We are definitely going to get to but that. But I just uh, I just have to have a Christmas background. Never even thought of it, I would lump it into a Christmas category. Never, ever to this argument started going. Never. Tyler. See, that's good because I think we're I think we'll make good conversation companions because I always lump things into a Christmas category, probably when they don't even belong in there. <laughs> well, I got an interesting but, list to give you to see if you agree or not. <laughs> yeah, I, I I'll turn it. anything I'll turn anything into a Christmas movie if there's some element. But my my number one argument of, against it being a Christmas movie is that the logic of all of these people having an office party on Christmas Eve is so thin and illogical to me How so? that this could have very... It honestly feels like it could have been a New Year's party or something like that, much more... Oh, much yeah, more because our, believably. Build, our building's desert at Christmas Eve. I mean, unless the person keeping the TV station on the air. I mean, salespeople, marketing people, they're all gone, way gone before Christmas Eve ever hits. There's no, there's no mention of a uh, uh, Santa exchange or anything like that, yeah. too, or no, or gift exchange. No, like that, that. and nobody does that. No. Like it's, it would probably be like an HR issue to try to drag everybody <laughs> into the office on Christmas Eve. We, we get mad at the people because we're still at the station putting on the air, and everybody else is gone. All right. 
I, I do remember at the movie theater for um, when I worked there forever, the one night it's ch- it changed. And I don't know where it's at the, with the pandemic, but the one night a year, the movie theater was closed was Christmas Eve. Yeah. Well, even uh, now it's weird though, but restaurants will be open on Christmas Eve, will be, be uh, closed on Christmas day night. Uh, it's it's well, Christmas day. So I don't make, oh, well, see Christmas day, but it makes sense. Cause like Denny's will be open during the morning. You always go to the restaurant. I know. Though. And they shut down at night. Who's going to make on Christmas food for day, Ted on Christmas? On Christmas day, you're, you want to be home in the morning cause Santa Claus comes and everything else. Then you can go out at night I and mean, it's, it's just a flip flop at Denny's and other restaurants. So, I mean, I'm just saying, I don't, <laughs> always, well, we had that problem. You and I, we've searched we for had a restaurant. That, we had that problem past. for years. Yes. Christmas. Um, Okay, uh, one of my big exhibits, uh, especially with the one specific moment you were talking about, I know this is a audio medium, but I want to present my version of uh, Die Hard, which I bought as the 30th anniversary edition. And I don't know if you could see this. Ooh, but it is, I love that. It looks it like is, a Christmas sweater design. It's a knitted design on the 30th anniversary Blu-ray cover. I love that design. Slip cover, yeah. for, for those of you listening, it's the it's the uh, cover art to our show notes. But it is it has yippee-ki-yay, and the, that part is covered, money. And then it just says, ho, ho, ho. I want with I want with motherfucker on the sweater. I want that sweater. That looks like a that looks like a good sweater. So Bruce Willis, Bruce Willis's mom are the big proponents I know of that are say it isn't a Christmas movie. His mom? Yeah, his mom joined her. Joined her. There's a TMZ article where she she contributed. She said Christmas isn't an essential element of the movie. The quote I I saw from Bruce Willis is he says it's a Bruce Willis movie, not a Christmas movie. Bruce Willis thinks he's bigger than Christmas, and that's a mistake for Bruce Willis. That is that is very tenuous logic of, hey, by the way, I'm a movie star. I'm a genre unto myself. Exactly. Uh, but also going on the record, Stephen uh, E. D'Souza, the, one of the screenwriters on it, has been saying for years that this is a Christmas movie. His point is that if Die Hard isn't a Christmas movie, then White Christmas is also not a Christmas movie. And then last year, around the same time that Atlantic article came out, John McTiernan spoke with AFI, so this AFI series, and gave this really quasi-interesting, quasi-bizarre 12-minute explanation on why Die Hard is a Christmas movie. And he talks about, eventually, the reasons he wanted to do a movie is he wanted to make a very anti-capitalist Christmas movie. Uh, yeah. He- his basis was the Potterville sequence in It's a Wonderful Life, which he thinks is one of the most anti-capitalist or critique of what he's called unregulated cowboy capitalism sequences in movies. And he's like, you got away with that because it's a Christmas movie. And I don't know if I can recommend watching this whole all the way through. I didn't. It's 12 minutes. I didn't get all the way through. But there's all this like six minutes of art history at the Louvre that he uses as preamble to get into this. And then he justifies one of the weaker parts of the movie, which is... Uh, all the bureaucrats are uh, obstacles to the story and idiots in, in all the diehard movies, mainly the first two, I guess. But No, that's actually fair. And I do think, I mean, you know, whether it's a capitalist commentary or not, it's definitely, an you know, there's a strong, you know, anti-greed theme going on, plus the family familial reconciliation. So that does feel, you know, corporate greed and... Um, yeah, I mean, I you know, I think I think familial reconciliation and greed are, are very common themes in Christmas movies. That does feel resonant. The closest I've gotten to an explanation of why it isn't a Christmas movie tends to be like it comes from people who have this idea that Christmas movies need to be a nuclear family, 
just very simple story of a nuclear family uh, celebrating each other for like two days as opposed to like what i think christmas is for a lot of us where it's like lights go up after halloween and it's all about fourth quarter consumer spending but there's rom-com christmas movies too right i mean like that's sort of a sub-genre of the christmas movie i don't think there's a lot of good examples but like scrooged right love scrooged that is a decidedly christmas movie sure uh, and not just because it's based on a Christmas Carol, but but there's no you know there's no family in that. It's really more of a romance and a reconciliation between him and his not greedy altruistic ex girlfriend. Well, I mean, we also now we have to address if we're going to talk about Christmas movies. It is a, a huge, huge uh, money making Hallmark movie uh, genre. I mean, it's I mean they're making they're making dozens every year now. Uh, Christmas. Oh movies. yeah. Which that never, I mean, you used to be able, when I was a kid, you know, you'd count on your hand, two hands, like how many Christmas movies that were out there. Yeah. And you would, you know, look forward to seeing them around Christmas time. Now, I guess we're going to probably have a, or is there one already, a 24-hour Christmas channel? Christmas I think channel. that they're, I think that they already we're, do that on Hallmark, and you're totally right. You know, this year alone, they did a new uh, Christmas story movie. I've um, seen that. And they that. also... And now they also did the Santa Clauses. They reinvigorated. I don't know if they reinvigorated, but they brought out. The, they brought the Tim what, Allen. Was it invigorated in the first place? It's it was a, not invigorated. I've got love for the first one. Certainly, it stops at the first one. It's a but, stream, but it's a streaming series, I think. Right? And we're never going to be able to ever stop the variations and variants of Christmas Carol. We get the uh, Ryan Reynolds, Will Ferrell thing, you know, out uh, this year. Exactly, enchanted, so, yeah, or spirited, rather, yeah. I. I think you also mentioned Christmas Story, which that maybe my issues I don't traditionally like with the movies they show at Christmas and like the 24 hour Christmas story. I don't know if they're still doing that or TBS used to run Christmas Story mm -hmm. that with my family decided to watch that. I was I completely checked out. And then you got I have never been into that movie. And then you got little interesting twists and turns like uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Which bombed, as we all know, bombed at the box office and kind of disappeared. And now it's a perennial Christmas film when it wasn't, uh, you know, anywhere to be seen as a Christmas film for years. Thank and you, now... public domain. <laughs> yeah, and that's and that's the same with the Christmas story too. To your point, I mean, that was not a success when it came out. But I think that those movies are kind of like sleepers. And I do think there's plenty to be said about a Chris Christmas story being overrated, and I think plenty of people feel that way. Okay. But I, also, I, I, I don't think any movie should be looped for 24 hours straight on repeat. <laughs> like that's probably not a standard that any movie can hold up to. I think it was just you know it was just uh, it's become Gene Shepard's writing that it's based on. I think you know it was uh, it, I think it got a following because it was like with scenes we hadn't seen in a Christmas film we hadn't had a Christmas film. Everything was. Were you into it when it came out? Oh yeah, I, I enjoyed it because I was aware. There's actually another story of the lamp, the Christmas lamp, done. Uh, PBS did another ver uh, version of that. Uh, they. I love that. And uh, the uh, so I got I kind of got on the Gene Shepherd. I go, oh, this is, and uh, I, I like Darren McGavin and you know, and then I remember my dad saying stories about how you know the BB guns and stuff, and so I thought it was you know really cute. I, I was kind of a fan of Bob Clark, uh, so I. I but yeah, now I'm kind of like I'm kind of like backed away from it because everybody's just gone gaga over it and almost smothered it, you know, with this uh, love. Uh, I I think 
the smothering does it, but also I will say, I think that there's like a, a Norman Rockwell kind of Rockwellian like vibe to it. That totally. is just something that, that is captured in that movie. It's kind of like, I think about like why people, you know, people are so obsessed with the Sandlot, for example, you know, it's just like these movies that seem to just kind of capture this vibe. Good call. Yeah. Totally. They yeah. might not be that great, but they have th- things that we really relate to because Prior to this, you know, Christmas movies were either like Bing Crosby stuff in the '40s or something, White Christmas, or or it was or it's just Christmas Carol, Christmas Carol, Christmas Carol variations, which are really interesting to, to pursue. But that it was kind of different at the time. Well, per your Sandlot point, there's a communal thing that comes from like the one movie someone who's not a big film fan decides to watch over and over. Like, <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say that too because it seems like the list of Christmas movies that you can tell these are general people, these are non-film fanatics that like. Film, that like these films. I was looking because my favorite Christmas Carol. Anytime I hear somebody talk about the Alistair Sim Scrooge, usually they're a film fan. They they know they're film fanatics. I, and, I've heard you talk about. Well, it. well, it's and in fact, I was reading where Radio City Music Hall decided not to play the 1952 Alistair Sim film because it was too dark of a Christmas Carol version. They actually put it in another theater. So I, it's just interesting to see how the list, like Elf, Elf, everybody's crazy. Another one that just gets, everybody goes goofy over is Elf. Yeah, no. Um, real briefly to finish out on Christmas Story, a uh, reason I have a problem is, is completely personal. Whenever I used to, uh, Ted and I used to write for the same magazine in town and uh, do music reviews, and I gave a local band, not even a bad review, but a tepid review, and they changed their entire press page to. Uh, whenever you entered the press page, there was a MIDI that said, fuck Shane Hazen, whenever you entered it. <laughs> and they had, and, and they became, ups- they had this thing over and over. I forget how they worked in the songs or at shows, they would say, they would make jokes that I look like Ralphie from Christmas Story. <laughs> now, this is my late teens, early uh, 20s, and I used to have big gra- glasses, as you guys remembered. And I got this a lot with not so much Ralphie. That was like a weird one because my hair wasn't blonde. Are you going to oink like a little piggy, though, on this podcast? No. Um, (laughs) It was the same with Harry Potter where I would do a Pepsi challenge where I'm like, hey, I look like this person. Let me take off these glasses. Do I not look like this person anymore? Interesting. It seems like the glasses is a big component of this. Hey, but that's how Superman Clark did work. Oh, no. <laughs> you say wearing a <laughs> Superman shirt and glasses right now. <laughs> okay, let's get back to Die Hard real quick. Uh, mm-hmm. Have you, Ted, uh, have you seen uh, the Gordon Douglas, the detective with Frank Sinatra? Um. Uh, if I've seen it, it's like on TV in a long time ago. I, it's, I got a bunch of Sinatra films like that kind of blurred together, so I can't specific, specifically say I, I have definitively seen it. Tyler, there's no way you've seen it, have you? No, I, I think uh, it's kind of, yeah, it's blurred. It's sort of late period Sinatra, right? Yes, I remember, right. yeah, I, yeah, I'm it, looking it up. Yeah, 68. I don't know that I did. It's Gordon Douglas. He did In Like Flint, and uh, mm-hmm. I've been one you see. He, he did the Stagecoach remake, amongst others, but he was, he's been since, like, The Silence. Or... Yeah, he's been a long, I mean, he's a yeoman director. I mean, he's got interesting films, but nothing that really makes you, you know, go crazy over. I did look up a bit about, uh, so... The, the character of John McClane comes from a character named Joe Leland in these two books that were written by Roderick Thorpe, the detective. And then Die Hard is based off one called Nothing Lasts Forever, 
which is a sequel 40 years after the detective and there's a lot of overlapping plot elements but they like from what i read of the synopsis he kills terrorists one by one the um the crazier thing is he's not visiting his wife he's visiting his estranged daughter whose whose name is Gennaro, but his name is joe leland the story came to thorpe because he fell asleep after having watched towering inferno <laughs> and had a, <laughs> had a dream of a guy running through a machine gun supposedly but al powell's his name is intact the like i think i mentioned the is this ter- the credits is it based does it say based on the book or it says based on the book it doesn't say the book nothing lasts forever you know now i think the wga makes a point to say if the title is different than the title of the movie yeah okay i was gonna say it's interesting i thought i would have they never used i mean it's, it's only as far as i can tell it's only two books but the crazier thing is uh well he, he is barefoot he is forced to be barefoot and he does take out terrorists one by one and there is a bunch of cops who aren't helpful bureaucratic cops that aren't helpful but at the end of the movie when uh gruber dies gruber takes uh the daughter stephanie Gennaro, with him and he gets embittered and throws money out the window um the book i think also has a straight they're trying to steal money but i think they also are straight leftist terrorists and the movie Die Hard makes a point of quickly like, like that's a subversion of we're not really we're not political terrorists we still are only going after money Right. Hmm. Okay, I'm glad I brought that to a halt. No, uh, no, no, but no, it's fascinating. I, 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 I just, I try to think of. Usually, I, I, I find it fascinating when uh, things are built under their. Detect- this is all taken from Wikipedia, so uh, I mean, well, I, I didn't taking, read the book. Taking it back to the book, was there any sort of holiday element in the book? Yes, there you go. According, I didn't see anything to Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah, because it sounds like the book was probably, and this is often the case, and probably rightly the case, the book was a little bit heavier and more weighty than, you know. Well, maybe I, I forget, the but the, the detective has a tagline of like being a um, this is this is a real adult story of of police work or something like that. I mean, and well, making make a Christmas party gives it uh, a plot element that's really convenient. For what's going to go go down, as opposed to if it was just an average office day, yeah, or in some kind of. Uh, and I think that that I think that that era. I mean, this was before the like insane procedural world and decades and decades of thousands of hours of police related content. You know, I mean, this was coming out of like the era of like, you know, dragnet and police work was a, was serious business and noir stuff. Like I'm sure in the you know mid late sixties when that guy. You know, I mean, this was. I'm sure it was not intended as a lighthearted fare that we are now talking about as a quasi Christmas movie. It was probably it's probably quite different. A new action hero too. They they totally yeah. It's a, it's nothing like the detective. I can tell you that. Okay, so, that character. Ted, I think that whenever I first brought this up to you, you were wanting to talk about which you mentioned earlier the the light the step forward. Yeah, what year is this? Uh, 88. 8088. Uh, so I mean, I just I just remember you know being a Bond fan and being you know. Uh, you know, an amateur film historian. Uh, we now have looked at the you know, the trajectory of action films. You know, Bond films set the uh, the bar in the '60s and held it for a while. And according to a lot of film people, that this is the the big change that this lifted the bar and uh, the action hero is and 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 the contextual. Elements. But th- this was a step forward from Bond. Yes. So uh, in terms of just the. Uh, I guess he's what a more working man hero and a more common? grounded. But yeah, he, you and, went, where would you put Raiders in the Lost Ark in that? Because you know they made the big deal about that's a Bond ass character, but got hurt. Yeah, that's true. But but nobody gets hurt 
like John McClane gets hurt. Like you get a working class guy, you can smell the BO coming off of John McClane by the end of this movie. He is bloody and cut up and he's sweat through his 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 tank top six times over. I think that that's maybe what it is and you see a lot of that going into the early 90s where there is more of this kind of like hardened action hero that's not always quaffed like indy never really is sweating it that much and bond certainly not i had the movie on right before we started and one of the things i marveled at is after mclean goes through the vent the first time how quickly his tank top goes from white to brown like (laughs) (laughs) there's so many continuity issues in this movie i mean that's kind of one of the famous things about it too and it's just it's just the uh it's just the uh pacing and the effects and the uh, largeness of it and the quickness of it, it seemed to had uh, it gave new it had an energy. The Bonds were getting lethargic, you know. The Bond films were getting, and they didn't know where to go and where to have, what. They, and they started copying other genres instead of being the cutting edge. And so this seemed like to be where the cutting edge was shifted to when this came out. And there might have been an American thing here too. You know what I mean? Is it's like indie's very quintessentially American, of course, but like this is a relatable working class hero who is just trying to save his wife as he's come here to reconcile with her and he gets in the way of something so much bigger than him just by sheer grit and determination. And I think that that's, that's a different, that's a decidedly different sort of action archetype. I think one of the things that helps your, that point too, is the the biggest critique of that. um, The first one is such a great working class character who got hurt and was vulnerable physically is uh, the sequels. The sequels progressively get cartoon more and more cartoonish. Um, yeah, I watched Die Hard two in prep for this too, and I hadn't seen that in years. And I oh, the jet engine kill is like the best kill in this whole series. I love that. Randy Harlan, where are you now? Randy, so. China. If you listen to our re, uh, red carpet episode, right? Um, no, I actually I was gonna. I I got a. I know Die Hard two's reputation has been. It depends uh, on who you talk to, yeah. Watching it again, it was a crock of shit when I saw it. It was like plot hole after <laughs> plot hole after like like the, the whole basis of the movie was like uh we've take we we we've made it so you can't talk to the planes in the air. By the way, every passenger can call, t- get on the phone and call somebody, but is it it's also around Christmas or winter at least, or right? No, that and to be fair, that one is more distinctly has a christmas plot that needs to be christmas because the whole point is the terrorists are screwing up a busy airport during christmas season to bring it back to to like just the arc of action films i'm just looking at steven d'souza's you know 80s. i wanted to talk to you about steven and D'Souza. going you know and going from commando in 85 <laughs> to to the running man in 87 which i realize now the running man is sort of like you know his part a of getting to judge dread seven or eight years later <laughs> Yeah. Kind of cool. Okay. But like he he really made a career of running people through the gauntlet. You know, I mean it was just like these single isolated action heroes. I mean That's an issue the the isolated. He was primed for right he was primed to write this. I guess I'm saying I didn't quite realize, especially and I love forty eight hours, you know, which he did for Walter Hero Hill so six years. Going to Seuss's back history, he started out as a writer on Six Million Dollar Man and Bionic mm. Woman. Uh, he did two episodes of my favorite TV show when I was five years old, Night Rider. But he came on to do the production rewrite of 48 Hours, which was edited by all, all three of ours mutual friend and Midnight Run editor, Billy Weber, who's on. We did a Midnight Run episode with him. But, Love it. Yeah. And also, if you want to go later into his career when he did his soul, like he's directed a TV movie. But uh, where do you have an opinion on Street Fighter, Tyler? I have a nostalgic warm spot for Street Fighter. 
Okay. Uh, but I haven't seen it in years. And oh, it probably I, I haven't seen up. it since it came out. It's Apparently, its reputation has gone up a little. I remember thinking, um, even at the time, what, as a stupid... If you're interested, Polygon has a really, really long read about the making of that kind of describes where Capcom he was. But the best part of the movie, as from day one since I saw it, is it's Raul Julia's last role, and Raul Julia plays mm-hmm. a megalomaniacal M. Bison. Like, it's 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 a very very interesting take. The thing about the script is it's just such a piece of clockwork precision to me. Right. It also, also, it's funny. I have a, a guy in my writing group who's a great action uh, writer. And we've talked a lot about, you know, like sort of blocking and logistics being so. And then Shane, we did that one on To the White Sea, you mm-hmm. know, um, which is, is such a weird thing to bring into this conversation. But it also is, you know, an isolated protagonist moving through an incredibly threatening, uh, you know, there's some there's a singularness to to it that kind of is 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 like this and i think john getting from the beginning from the bottom of the building to the top of the building and this sort of you know um fun house that he's stuck in i mean it's just it's so simple structurally i think that that's what works about it and then i think like we're saying about these themes of reconciliation and greed you know just make it human and relatable but um yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that there's, I think more and more in uh, what I see in writing is the stuff that I'm impressed by is always somehow decidedly simple. And this movie is really basic in a lot of ways, but it just works. One of the things that hit me in Die Hard 2 is how it really makes Die Hard 1 look very simple. I mean, and, and a lot of everyone was taking the formula of Die Hard. It was like, get someone trapped in a small space with terrorists. Well, and then and then the next and then why why it gets good when it goes to Die Hard with a Vengeance and that's so much better than two is that they just kind of got rid of all of that. They added the cows and cat and mouse game and they made it much bigger, obviously in scope. But it's like the simplicity serves you, especially in an action movie. And there's so many bad examples of action movies that get so convoluted that you couldn't even explain the plot at the end because it's just a big can of worms well die hard 2 especially it seems like it takes this uh if you want to try to formulize the die hard one it's die hard 2 takes it to its limit and then i think the story i always heard with die hard with a vengeance was it's like uh jonathan hensley i think did the script for that and he or he was a main credit writer but it was one of those examples of it was a completely different spec script and they rewrote it for john mcclane that makes sense actually and then then you write the um Jeremy Irons characters relation to uh, Hans Gruber in the first one. That that's the story I always heard from it, but that, I mean that makes sense. I mean there is nothing about it in that cat and mouse game that has anything to do with what Hans is doing in the first one. But that's why the first one's just again there's I think that, that there's certain things you can only do one time and this movie's been attempted to be, you know, repeated and regurgitated 10,000 times, but it's still just the OG because it's elegantly simple. Do, am I putting, I mean, I, I you, we're both saying good things about the script, but it sounds like I have this script at a much higher level of than, like, I mean, because I, I, I'm putting this as one of the best scripts of all, like, best Hollywood's action scripts of all time. You know, you might have it at a higher level than I do. I think the script does get a ton of love. I think that, I think that Alan Rickman and Bruce Willis get a lot of credit, and I think there's some amazing one-liners in this movie that are just totally undeniable and i think that there is again a beautiful simplicity to the structure of it um 
but I just don't know if on the page. Yeah, I think I think it's way up there, and I think to Ted's point, it sort of ushered in maybe a new era in action movies, and that's why it kind of gets a lot of that credit because I think '90s action movies, a lot of them owe a lot of credit to what Die Hard kind of ushered in. Um, but yeah, I don't know. What do you What do you guys think? Well, with, I think the other like there's a lot of people working at the top of their game and there's a lot of serendipity. Like, I mean, just this is Alan Rickman's first screen role, isn't it? Is that right? First debut? Yeah. debut? Yeah. Uh, I'd have to check that out. That's, that's hard to believe. I mean, just because British actors, even though they, a lot of times they're, they're theater heavy in the beginning, they start, you know, Judy Dench goes back to the sixties and movies. If you look at it. So I'm thinking Alan, but it must've popped up in one or two films, but I mean, it's his first, debut that put him on the radar on the map of, of course no you know what shane you're you're right he had been basically in it looks like quite a bit of british tv yeah uh it's his first screen british role. tv british tv character uh credits and like bbc shakespeare specials and stuff like that but but yeah this was his first uh first movie and first american credit wow pretty wow wow yeah that, that that is the serendipity of like that's a pretty like i had always heard it as his first and so like that's a pretty damn good debut i would be more of i would be more effusive of alan rickman and die hard than i would of the script for die hard i think alan rickman and die hard is ridiculously good i think he's yeah. one of the best villains of all time well mctiernan's also coming off of uh predator and yeah i think he goes on to hunt for red october after this and he's giving well that's the weird thing between mctiernan and d'souza they're all coming off of these arnold movies yeah, you know, they, like, yeah. They came off of like Arnold for four years. That's what I was thinking when you mentioned Commando. I mean, he, yeah. and, and McTiernan also has like a he, everything he's done is a very grounded. Uh, it's workman, but it's also he's got that very distinct anamorphic uh, flair thing. But it's he's 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 medium. To, he doesn't really do a lot of shot reverse shot. Like it's always he's like kind of like tight master shots and everything comes out and then and like there's a connectivity and flow between them that's just really well directed well this is this is a period where i i'm feeling mctiernan is uh is the uh go-to director to making a blockbuster really cool and not stodgy uh it, it, he brought a little bit of a a flair uh to you, you know the, the big blockbuster action films that you just you know you kind of oh you know but i go back to like you know you, we mentioned tower inferno you you know you got tons of stars in Tower Inferno, but the thing's a little stodgy, you know, and mm. uh, and McTiernan had a way to you don't you don't, you're not embarrassed to like his films, <laughs> so uh, in many ways. So that's I don't know, I, but it's too bad is he didn't maintain that. And of course, he had that big problem what, later on, did he? Yeah, yeah. So. Um... No, I love that you're saying stodgy. There's something about his films that are just cool. Yeah, you know what I mean? yeah, and There's they're they're, they're big the Hollywood thing. films, and usually. You know, we're going. Oh, we we're we big Hollywood films. We don't like them, you know. But no, I you know these are these are fun and uh, they move right along. And you're not, like I said, you're not embarrassed to say, yeah, that's a that's a damn good film. So, yeah. And he also, again, back to the D'Souza thing. Like, there's something about like, and I love Walter Hill, and I do think that there's something about like he's McTiernan's like classic tough guy filmmaker kind of. You know what I mean? Where there's just sort of this like there's no pretense to this movie at all. And that's part of what's charming about it. And Hans is almost a little pretentious. That's kind of why you want to see him thrown out a window at the end of this thing. Cause it's like, like, I don't like the accent and the way you guys are dressed and all this fancy long hair that these gunmen have and stuff. I'm here to just kill all of you. Hans Bubala. Yeah, exactly. That. Oh my God. And the, the cocaine executive. Yeah. That, that guy needed to die horribly. 
you two, I'm surprised you guys haven't jumped into the Walter Hill. Well, there. no, no, no. But I mean, what he said about Walter Hill, I mean, it's it, uh, boy, that's a that's a whole other episode because I mean, <laughs> with Walt, that's not just one episode. Well, you yeah, are with me. I, I'll with you. No, you no. Know, but I mean, I probably Walter's films are seem to be a lot of them have flaws that he doesn't overcome. That's one reason I watch them again and again because I'm, I'm I'm working them out. And seeing what he's trying to do, whereas McTiernan's just as smooth as milk. I mean, you know, it goes down really easy. With Hill, you know, there's some trouble. There's some problems sometimes with him, but some I, intentional dirtiness, kind of to the yeah, or or you know, you want this to work so well because all the uh, uh, our elements are really really cool, and he's got such an uh, interesting uh, style. But sometimes it, don't, it doesn't gel as smoothly, um, unfortunately. And I'm not sure why. You know, we sit there and start analyzing them all, but we are not. I totally agree with that. I think, no, I think that that's actually, I think that's right, but I think that there's something about the non-fussiness of it, and there is some clunkiness that might come along with that, right. that, that is endearing somehow, and he is such a good writer, too, that, like, he's working on a very solid foundation, even if he's not maybe quite as smooth as McTiernan in a couple of these titles. Well, one of the things I would say about D'Souza is, I mean, it really hit me watching Die Hard 2 just because there's a, you can tell there's a lot of the same fingerprints. Like, it just seems like there's not a lot of the, like, need to, like, ground this in either logic or just grounded in general that Rennie Harlan's probably given. And it goes back to the conversation you and I have had multiple times, Tyler, about screenwriters just don't have the power to be to be their own author. Like, they, ha- they are working for the director most of the time. Because, mm-hmm. like, uh, one movie I rewatched a few years ago, Sousa and uh, Bruce Willis, that I think is massively underrated, and at the time got a terrible reaction, was Hudson Hawk. Like I think that's a that's a pretty solidly good movie. <laughs> yeah, okay. I am I am painfully <laughs> alone in this. No, 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 no. I I need to watch it again. It's but so I need to watch it again. I, I was never a big fan though. It honestly. is Daniel Waters and Michael Lehman's follow up to Heather's, amongst other things. D'Souza's also yes, on it. and I and I you know any movie that has James Coburn in it and it has and it uses the 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 little tone from the president calling. Oh, the Ian Lake Flint one. The Austin Powers do that too. You know, I I I remember walking out going, "Well, that was an interesting film." Uh, I, I didn't dismiss it, but like most people did. I think it was one of those movies that was way too collectively shit on when it came out, and is just it's it's way more clever, and smarter than you think it is. So many of those films back then just had such huge expectations on them, and they just died because uh, it was no, there's no way it's going to live up to the. What was expected of them, and that now everybody's dis- rediscovering them. You know that Polygon article I was talking about Street Fighter Two, like that. I mean, that's a movie he's directing, and he talks about how like one by one he makes one concession after another to, uh, not that Street Fighter was going to you know come out great, but I mean it, it was it better than it deserved at least or at least based on so. It's got its cult status. Last story I want to talk about D'Souza's achievement. I mean, Die Hard is a movie that is taught in screenwriting classes a lot, though. Um, 100%. I, I'm not I'm not despairing. I was not saying any disparaging words about the script. It's phenomenal. But I do think that there is a simplicity to it that that, that is the reason it's taught in screenwriting classes because it maps on to most modern you know schools of thought around screenwriting. It's very easy to break down structurally, and so it makes a good use case. Well, to that point, I was going to bring up, I have a friend that taught, like, I'm not exactly sure what type of screenwriting class he was teaching, 
but he taught Die Hard for years. And we were at a party one night and he admitted, uh, or actually gleefully admitted, he's never seen Die Hard. And he's been teaching in a screenwriting <laughs> class for years. Uh, I, I don't want to hear that. Ugh. I know. That's, uh, that feels wrong somehow. Yeah, very wrong. I don't know how but he I did it. I don't know I, how I really he did do, it. I, I, think that, I think that that's really what it is, though, and why somebody could say something like that is I could do like a Sid Field breakdown on that thing in like five seconds because it's like, it's just a singular protagonist. His want is so crystal clear from the second you meet him. He's got this giant teddy bear that he's coming to make a reconciliation with. And it turns out to be a little bit harder for him to reconcile with his wife. But that's exactly what he does by the end of it. And it's just clean. The the reason I jumped to the clockwork precision was that I can't I cannot for the life of me remember who made this critique. I thought it was David Foster Wallace, but David Foster Wallace is a is a fan of Die Hard. I thought it was Roger Ebert, but it wasn't him. Someone made a point that there was something about um, a ruthless efficiency that this movie has no breathing and no air into it every moment, and that became like a, a mechanical way of making action movies. Someone critiqued this from that vantage point. Yeah, I mean, that probably plays into the, the change the ship in the action film uh, genre, too, because, because of that. Well, and Ted might know, you might have a different view or a better view of this historically. Like, I don't know how many action movies there were. Uh, Deliverance isn't a straight action movie, but I'm thinking about the real-time nature of this movie. It's, it's, it's almost unfolding in real time, you know, the, a large chunk of it. And I think that that urgency, you see a lot of Bond movies, and you don't know how many weeks or months these that were, were traveling all over the world and were jumping yes. between set pieces. Right. And Indiana Jones works that way very much, too. But then you come into the 90s, and there was sort of the birth of, like, the real-time thriller, and there's really good and bad examples of that. But this might that might be part of it, too. Yeah, sure. I mean, that urgency, that... that... That adds, to, that adds to the quickness and urgency and the anxiousness that you feel, the tension that you don't get, you know, when, you know, he's, uh, Bond's just glo- uh, globe hopping and it's like, you know, the tension's kind of missing already, you know, uh, and he has anything to his, he has, he has everything at his disposal and the, and the, and the, the you know, the, the special guns and, and, and the, 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 the planes and, you know, he's got the, he's got the whole Bond, uh, the uh, British intelligence behind him, whereas <laughs> McLean has nothing, and, it, and that's and that's. There's a funny. Sorry, Shane. I'm just saying. There's a funny comparison between like Bond and John McLean. There is no comparison, but the, the but where the way they speak to each other. There's John McLean doesn't like fanciness, and we are working class fans of John McLean kicking the ass of these European well dressed greedy bastards. Like there's a part of that that is like it's kind of an anti Bond action hero you know i mean he's kind of represents everything that bond doesn't it's almost like this very there's something just so quintessentially american about it and i feel like that's maybe why it's become this part of the canon in the way we talk about it i i mean i buy the americanness the critique i want to ask you guys about is i have seen uh live free die hard i think is the fourth one or live long i have too is that the one with justin long Oh, yeah. And Kevin Smith shows up in it. Um, and Kevin but, Smith shows up very conveniently to be like an IT museum, uh, you know. Hacker whiz. Oh, yeah. I'm so glad their relationship stayed strong. See, uh, it, started, it, started, it started going to a Bond direction there. That's uh, my point. And did you guys see A Good Day to Die Hard, which I have not seen? The, the last one, yeah. The one I, in Russia. I've kind of, yeah, I sat through it. It was just like sitting through it. <laughs> just like, uh, strap me in and I'll, I'll, I'll get through it. But it was not that. I lost it at the end of the fourth one when John McClane was flying a jet. 
Yeah. Well, here, here, here's a, here's a hot take. I actually think that the movie Logan, which I enjoy quite a bit, is more in the spirit of Die Hard one than the last several Die Hard movies. Like I, I think I that totally it's more that. because it's just it's again it's about the it's about feeling the violence. You know, there's there's certain filmmakers now. I'm thinking of. Uh, Who's what's his name that does uh, like Riot on Cell Block ninety nine? Oh, uh, Craig Zoller, S. Craig Zoller, uh, Craig Zoller, right? Like, like they, it's almost been brought to a new level now. But like where where there isn't this kind of fanciness to violence, it's just this brutal, hard hitting, bone crushing thing. And I feel like those movies owe something to Die Hard because really, you watch John McClane stuck in this fucking AC unit, just bleeding and bruised and so sweaty and uncomfortable. It, it was it's like this isn't just cool we don't just have cool toys i'm not like batman or james bond and i'm just gonna like carabiner out of here easily it's hard it's difficult the comic book story that um logan's based off is uh, called old man logan and the original pitch for that was wolverine in unforgiven no oh, there you go perfect Exa- exactly and in unforgiven that's great too because you feel how you feel his age and yeah. you feel time in that movie and i feel like there's something obviously John McClane is not completely contained by reality because he's got magazines in his Glock that have 47 rounds in them, apparently, or something insane. Okay. Like he just keeps shooting the gun and it just keeps shooting people. Yeah. I, and I'm, I'm, now you got me more. You got me thinking a lot of here because mm-hmm. like with the, 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 the uh, he filled the sweat, dirt and, and the, the, the really uh, pain. And we, you know, we started getting that with Peck and Paul. And then Sam, yes. but but Sam didn't. Sam couldn't keep his, you know, he couldn't keep off the drinking and the drugs, and he just diminished as he went along. We we might have had it might have been a different uh, level if Sam had maintained his, you know, his uh, uh, chops. Oh, absolutely. But uh, but so that did, so the, so McTiernan is bringing that back uh, in some ways, and then I'm thinking, where are the Hong Kong films at this time? John Woo, I had maybe the killer's probably out by this point. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking, you know, it, we forget. I think some of these guys saw these Asian films way before we saw them. I think Carpenter did too. And, uh, that, yeah. And they would, they started infusing the Hong Kong action that we, we would eventually see once they started, you know, um, importing them over here. But, uh, and, that's a great, that's a great point. A Better Tomorrow came out in 86. A Better Tomorrow go. 2, 8, 8, uh, 2, 87. And The Killer was 89. And when you oh, said, okay, and off. when yeah. you said the gun, when you said the guns go off with, you know, big giant magazines, I'm thinking of the, the Hong Kong Asian films. Oh, they're, for just, sure. they're, they're just 100%. shooting forever, you know, and there's no, exactly. there's, there's no limitation on their guns. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, this is also stylized gunplay, whereas isn't the conversation about them getting more grounded and sweaty? And well, real, well or that's, is that's, that not necessarily? No, just, what it just, is? there's just elements of it. I think, but, 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 and, and Sousa and a very American way of doing it as opposed to because I loved in Big Trouble Little China that we're, we're, we're going way off subject we, we talked about this on the Carpenter episode but where he uh, uh, to, in order to, to do the really crazy fighting they're taking magic potions they have the, that's the Americanized <laughs> version we can't right. we, the American, American audience can't believe they, they can't swallow that just to see them do that without any reason and so they give them right. a reason. They give them a potion. So the the McTiernan, uh, the diehard thing is let's bring it down, but we're still going to have this kind of gun fu play, you know, going on. That that's what I mean. Is I was citing that is like the gun fu play part of it is sort of the one exception to that rule. But I love the peck and paw thing, and I think you're right that McTiernan and guys like Walter Hill certainly owe a lot 
right. Peckinpah. You know, I mean, that was there was a dirtiness and a griminess and a violence. That... And of course, Sam is, you know, Sam's thinking he's an artist and he's going to use it, you know, be, you know, poetic and, you know, be much more, you know, heavy duty uh, contextual wise. Whereas, you know, McTiernan said, hey, we're going to have fun with this. You know, he's not he's not, he's not I don't think he has the axe to grind that Peckinpah did. No, in this yeah. movie, like we were saying, even compared to the book, which I, I, I haven't read, but I mean, this is a movie that is for everybody yes, and is right. a whole barrel of fun. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not, pre it, its themes are very clear, but it's not preoccupied with them. It knows what it's here to do. I really came to this movie whenever they would play it over and over on TV. And uh, I, it, there's a lot of movies in the last few years I have started to watch down too much. I'll put it on, rewatch it and like drain my joy out of it. I had this on beforehand. I want to go back and watch to finish it up. Like I, I can always keep watching this movie. I think one year Fathom, I, I think I went to every Fathom uh, TCM Fathom event movie uh, that year, and I think Die Hard was one of them not too long ago. And I, God, I couldn't believe how much of a blast I had watching this. I mean, it just, it's just, uh, it's one of those films where you hardly have a, you know, a flaw, with, you know, with it in some ways. I think going back to your Bond point though, Ted, I wanted to like whenever we talk about uh, action movie supplanting Bond. I do tend to go towards espionage movies with that because because I always remember the Bourne movies being the one that was talked about and well, that was the next step I, yeah yeah no no totally and then but I, I don't see Die Hard as necessary I don't know necessarily Billion Block because like right now for well that, the espionage element is a terrorist I mean sort of you know a world there's kind of that world feel of you know espionage usually in, incorporates okay uh, uh, that world of uh, the the global aspect of it and all of a sudden you have these terrorists. You know, here in America and California, so that's. I mean, I, I mean, I'm really stretching. To, no, no, to, no, to pull no, that no, in. no. I, I, that makes sense. But I mean, they're they're suit and tie. They're they kind of. I mean, this this is a group of villains you might have expected to see in a Bond, but possibly Bond come across at one point, maybe. I agree. I totally agree with that. Also, the other thing I don't want, I don't want to pivot here, but I just something that we haven't talked about in terms of like when you're talking about the watchability of this movie and why it feels so flawless. I think Michael Kamen, the composer, gets a call out on this, and I was just. And it was because I remember the score for this movie like very, very vividly. And it's so big and in your face and smashing you like it's so clear. Yeah. And I'm looking up his like, I was like, what was he doing right around this time? The son of a bitch did Lethal Weapon the year before this. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, you that's know, crazy. And I then, remember. Yeah. And, and he'd done four Bond movies by that time, too. He did Bond so movies? Like, Michael Kamen? Yeah, he did License to Kill. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, he did Brazil, too, at the, as the one I remember. And he from. did Brazil. Yeah, I mean, amazing. I mean, yeah. I remember shitting on Michael Kamen for years because I remember uh, when the first X-Men came out, he did that. And that was that period where, like... Well, the man did it. The man we, did we wanted, we wanted a big theme, you know? We wanted a big X-Men theme, music theme. That's It was coming off Superman and Batman being like, that's what we wanted in movie music. But... Ted, you've been chomping to talk about your favorite Christmas movies. No, no, I've just I I've already mentioned it basically. Is, is Alistair Sim? I, I I just I thought we might sneak in plugs for our favorite Christmas films as we're talking about whether this is a Christmas film. I mean, is this is this your favorite Christmas film? Shane? I don't really have favorite Christmas films because per thing like things like a Christmas movie to me is a Christmas story. Maybe that's why I think this debate is ridiculous. Do you have a tradition though of watching something? Cause I know I have a lot of friends that they, they got to get these films out and watch them every year at Christmas time. I don't, you know, to me, uh, I am totally down for Shane black movies being Christmas movies. 
Okay. I'm here. I'm here for that. I admittedly, and you know what's so funny? Not to get into it, but now that I just saw that, Lethal Weapon came out '87. This came out '88. Lethal Weapon, not a Christmas movie, set at Christmas. Right. As is Die Hard. That's weird. I had never draw. I never realized how quickly those. Well, I, I, back thought, back. I thought. I thought. I, Shane Black's whole shtick was he had to write in Christmas on everything. And how well, about this? How about this? The best Bond yeah. film is set around Christmas oh. time. <laughs> In my regard, Honor Match Secret Service. Oh, yeah, you're right. They have a Christmas. That's the they, only Bond film I know that's set at Christmas. Yeah, they even have a Christmas song on the soundtrack. That's so funny. That was written for I it. will say my it's it's the most uninteresting, unoriginal answer, but I tend to get a little bit weepy to It's a Wonderful Life every Christmas. I think I maybe missed a couple years, but I I'm I, I am I, I think it's the OG. I think it's been 10 years since I've seen it, but I remember my last viewing of it. The two things I was like, I didn't realize how long and epic it is and how, I mean, I think a lot of people pointed it out. It is a supre- surprisingly dark, dark movie. It's really dark, and it is epic. It goes on for 20 years. I mean, it covers the massive period of his life. And, I, I, and I'll again plug the 52, or 50, it's not, 51, 52 Scrooge, which uh, it's very dark take on Christmas Carol with Alistair Sim and I, I, very almost film noirish looking for a UK film. There was a, what is it, 1971, uh, Richard Williams, a great uh, animator, Roger Rabbit animator, he did a 30-minute version with Chuck Jones producing. They got Alistair Sim to come back to voice it and, and Michael Horton to voice Marley. And it's beautiful. It won an Oscar for a, a short Chuck film. Jones produced it? Yes. Wow. wow. I'm looking up stills from it. I mean, this looks Yeah, it, they use yeah, Zooms I, I, and ink, and then they based the artwork on the original... Carol books of the time and he had Richard Williams just goes to town on this thing. It's just amazing. I saw it as a kid and on it, when it aired a date on 71, this is before they had a rule on short films. That's why he got an Oscar. Oh, uh, they had to change the rules because of that, but it's just an amazing version. And they get Alistair Sim to come back and Michael Horton and Michael Redgrave does a narration. It's just a wonderful, it needs to be on Blu-ray. So bad is, it, is uh, it on youtube do you know uh yeah you can find it on youtube i think uh in fact if, oh, i'm gonna watch that this that's a great wreck i'm gonna watch that this year and then i have to admit one other thing is i i i embarrass myself but i've 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 suck i've been suckered into uh watching love actually around christmas time so one of the points i was going to make love actually so the person the person that's credited with having the strongest views or startiness in that atlantic article that this isn't a christmas movie was uh katie uh, oh, I, I misread her last name, but it was a BuzzFeed article called Stop Saying Die Hard is Your Favorite Christmas Movie. And she makes the point that it's not even the best Christmas movie with Alan Rickman because Love Actually is. Oh, Love Actually. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Okay, earlier on, Tyler, you said, you know, uh, it says about make, uh, you like the Christmas genre or making films Christmas ish. Yeah. So this is a list I came across here on the website The Summit Partner. Have you seen that Elliot Gould and Christopher Plummer? He's... I forgot that. Well, I mean, there's a big I, Santa I, costume. I vaguely that. remember that. He's in a no. Santa Claus outfit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, you, you need to watch that at some point. Uh, they got yeah. Goodfellas on here. Okay. Is there? Sure. It's got that. I mean, you know, people die at Christmas <laughs> yeah. and that. But yeah. Uh, the Godfather. Because I guess no, because she's Christmas. They're Christmas, Christmas shopping, shopping and they're watching. Yeah, that um... New York, that Manhattan sequence is one of the best sequences in the whole thing. I love that. And then there's on measure service, uh, the fearless vampire killers. I do not remember Christmas being in that. It's it, uh, yeah, I, it's, it's in snow. I don't know. I guess it's is it. I don't, yeah, we'll have to. I'll have to I've, 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 I haven't seen it in forever. How about the thing? I didn't know that was a Christmas movie. Um, is it taking place in Christmas? 
I think it does actually. I yeah. think there's maybe I don't well it takes place over a period of time, but I think right. that there might be some yeah, some nod to it. Yeah. Um, eyes wide shut. We did an eyes wide shut Christmas episode already, yeah. Uh nice. the Great Silence. It's a spaghetti western. I have uh, seen it. I don't yeah. remember it being Christmas based, dude. A lot of because a lot of these movies have snow no, throughout yeah. them. Yeah. Uh The Hateful Eight. See there's Sure. Uh Day of the Outlaw, which I have not seen. I have not seen that. Uh the um, the apartment. I think of the apartment as a New Year's movie. That was a New Year's uh, Eve tradition for me. Okay, Gremlins. Yes, Gremlins for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Trading Places. Ooh, I could kind of see that. Yeah, uh, the Irishman. That is a long period of time that movie takes place over. <laughs> so I guess there's a Christmas <laughs> sequence in it. Um, Catch me if you can. Kind of. Uh, oh, I love that Christmas. Well, that's a very sad Christmas sequence, but I like that. <laughs> Armacord. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Um, oh, uh, now I'm gonna m- m- mispronounce this. Uh, Noti uh, Bianche. I'm not. I'm not. I'm is, it, is that a, is that Antonioni? I'm not sure. I have to look it up. Antonioni does a Christmas movie. <laughs> well, yeah, that would be very interesting. <laughs> uh, it's it, we'll have to look it up. It's N O T T I B I A N C H E. And then Stalag Seventeen is your last one. And Stalag Seventeen. And then somebody else I came across of The Shining. This is his favorite Christmas film. Yeah, so. Well, now we're getting to that period yeah, like that's getting i mean you know this is that's this, pushing it yeah this is fuel for the people that don't want to say die hard or die hard is a great contrarian right. christmas movie or a movie for people who don't like traditional christmas movies yeah i just came across that doing a little little bit of homework before we started this my last thing i yeah. wanted to get off my uh yellow legal pad of writing there was a blog i came across by a guy named Stephen fellows he went over he did but he did a bunch of data that bruises to him that it's a christmas movie he found that Amongst IMDb user lists of favorite Christmas movies, it's the 22nd on the most lists of favorite Christmas movies on IMDb. But he also examined the script, and I'm not sure which draft he did, but he's found that the word Christmas was in there 18 times, as opposed to the word explode was in there four times, the word die was in there five times, the word hard was in there 11 times, the word shoot 12 times, the word kill 13, the word blood 13 too. So all those words are less than Christmas was in the script. <laughs> I love the idea, and I think that to bring it to bring it home as we're wrapping things up, this is like it is an argument for argument's sake, and that's what's fun about the conversation. Is it's like the idea of using data <laughs> to try to prove <laughs> a Christmas movie is a Christmas movie. It's like, do you like watching it at Christmas? Does it give you a sort of nostalgic Christmas feeling to it? To me, that qualifies it, especially when you add that to some of the thematic stuff that is pretty uh, meat and potato Christmas stuff with greed and and re- reconciliation. Yeah. So, and, you know, what's, you know, Christmas colored red. There's blood all over this movie constantly. There's like 16 Christmas songs on the track. I mean, on the soundtrack. I There's think, so many know. Christmas songs in this movie. Um, I guess my last question to you guys is uh, what are your favorite Die Hard parodies? Hmm. This 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 season of Rick and Morty had a whole B story episode about uh, Die Hard, the genre being a religion, and the main character Summer that had to deal with it was a seventeen year old girl, and they're like, "You've never seen Die Hard," and she so she had to put, commit to it being John McClane without never seen Die Hard, and so she starts shooting a gun. She starts saying, "Die Hard, Die Hard, Die Hard, Die Hard," over and over. I do. Am, am I? Am I recalling correctly? If there's a, a, a Homer, I have a vision of Homer Simpson playing uh, 
being Simpsons it, had to have yeah, done multiple ones. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Maybe I don't know. I don't. Ha- I, I really. I don't know. You caught me off guard there. I'm sorry, guys. No. I, I, I had a pl- I had planned answers, and I I, st- I just completely like threw you guys. Out. I know. I'm like I'm I'm, ba- I'm bad with it. I don't. It's like and it's so baked into the to it's the so culture. Baked like in. there must be a thousand. There's so there must be a thousand, but I really am blanking on that. My other one written down, planned in advance, was uh, the Ben Stiller show does Die Hard twelve. Uh, Die <laughs> oh, Hungry. I do remember that. It's I Die Hard remember. in a it's a Die Hard in a supermarket. And yeah. uh, at one point, the terrorist goes, your coincidental appearance at every terrorist attack on Christmas Eve grows tiresome, Mr. Bad Boy. And then Ben Stiller playing Bruce Willis goes, yabba-dabba-doo, yabba-dabba-dabba. That's the, that's the part I remember is him, like, hiding in the cereal aisle or whatever with, the, like, teasing them. I, I totally remember that from back in college. And the joke was that he's running out of one-liners, so, like, he takes a stack of uh, uh, toothpicks and then takes a bunch of straws and spits them at a, a, a terrorist and then gets them all over his face. And he's like, he's also running out of one-liners. And the tension is him trying to think of something. He's like, yeah, try to pick on somebody else. <laughs> yeah, nailed it. <laughs> okay. You know, there's no, there's no greater flattery than when Ben Stiller wants to pair you. I think that that's just <laughs> further evidence that it's part of the canon. Yeah, and there's nothing nothing much better than content than having someone else describe someone do a cool, funny parody. I'm glad I, I'm glad I took up this time. I think maybe, maybe he's going to say something about Pinhead. He's a Pinhead. He looks like a Pinhead. Ted, did you have more? Just, I will write it off so you just see if there's something we need to... The basic never situation of Die Hard is a man returning to his family for Christmas. Number two, his wife is called Holly. <laughs> there you go. That's one we missed. Um, number three, uh, it takes place on Christmas Eve, not Thanksgiving or the Fourth of July. It could have been set any week of the year, but wasn't. Uh, number four, the chief villain Hans Gruber explicitly invokes the Christmas spirit. It's Christmas, Theo. It's a time for miracles. Five, Gruber is a classic bad capitalist villain. He is to steal money, just as the old man Potter doesn't ever want of life. The soundtrack features Christmas tunes, new and old. Run DMC's Christmas in Hollis and Frank Sinatra's rendition of Let It Snow. Santa Claus makes an appearance in the form of a dead terrorist. The film ends with the character of a limo driver, Argyle, looking forward to New Year's Eve. That's what this guy listed. I just, I, the deck is stacked for Christmas. I just don't, I have not heard a really good argument for it not being a Christmas movie. Yeah. I know. Even when you're trying to find a good argument, it's it's not easy to find. I, I think I, I, I'm in the place, I'm neutral really about it. I, I, I enjoy seeing the argument happen. <laughs> it, it's just fun to watch everybody just uh I'm getting to it's, it's a twit. It's now turning into a Twitter argument. So now I'm like the rest of uh, America in 2022 are like, do we need to argue anymore, people? <laughs> do we need to argue about? And if we do, can we argue about things that matter? Yeah. Well, I think it was good that we joined a debate that decidedly doesn't matter. But it, made <laughs> me, it, it made me feel very festive before the holiday. <laughs> good way to get into Christmas. All right. Well, thank you guys for doing this. Uh, thank you. Merry Christmas. Now I have machine gun. Oh, oh, oh. Yippee-ki-yay. <laughs> Thanks, Tyler. Thank you.